This podcast contains bad, dirty language and adult themes. But first, here's a juvenile theme. I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton, I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this, that's the plan. Hey, how you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here. Thank you very much for joining me for another podcast. It's a beautiful day out here in East Anglia, where I live, and um, I'm out walking my dog, Rosie. Rosie is half poodle, half whippet. I'm just saying all this for the benefit of people who have joined us this week for the first time. Welcome. It's a little bit windy. You can probably hear, but it's a spectacular day, a classic, impressive Norfolk day. A giant sky stretches out ahead of me in big billowy clouds, scud slowly across the horizon. And there is quite a little bitey bite in the air. I've got a fleece and a coat on. How about that? Interesting stuff, isn't it? Let me tell you about this week's guest. I'm going to be talking today to Rory O'Neill also known as Panty Bliss, a drag artist, not to say queen, from County Mayo in Ireland. Rory has lived an extremely interesting and colourful life. He's something of a hero in Ireland especially, not just for his drag performances as Panty, but also for his work as a gay rights activist, a kind of accidental gay rights activist, really. He was on a TV chat show in Ireland on RTE in 2014 and he made some comments to the host speculating on the apparent homophobia of certain members of the Irish press. Well, the whole thing blew up into a big furore or a furore if you prefer. And this was all in the run-up to a referendum about gay marriage that took place in Ireland uh, shortly thereafter, and, and it was a very charged and emotive debate. And around that time, Rory went on stage as Panty, his alter ego, and he talked all about gay rights and equality in general in a very moving and articulate way. And the video subsequently blew up online, and that's the first thing that I saw of Rory's. Since then, I watched a film about him and about that whole incident called The Queen of Ireland... I'll also post a link to that speech, in case you haven't seen it, on my blog when I eventually update my blog. Uh, maybe I'll post a link on the actual details of this podcast as well, just so you can check it out if you want to. But I was in Dublin in July of this year, 2016. I was doing the Bug David Bowie special there. And the afternoon before the show, I went to meet Rory at the bar-slash-club that he owns, the Panty Bar. And we went downstairs um, before the place had opened up while the cleaners were in and various work people were bustling about. We spoke about what it was like growing up gay in a small conservative town in County Mayo. We talked about Rory's time living in Japan 
And of course, we talked about the whole RTE chat show incident, as well as other seismic events in Rory's life. It was great meeting him. He's very engaging and he's, he's got a really uh, positive spirit. I don't know why I said that like that. I think that's the only way you can say that someone's got a positive spirit, is in that voice. But we began our conversation with me asking Rory if he, like me, was a David Bowie guy. Here we go. Michael Jackson guy. Were you? Yeah. How old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 47. Oh, we're the same age. Yeah. So Thriller was your big album, was it? After Wall was the, the album that made me a giant Michael Jackson fan. And yeah. so when Thriller came along, I was like, oh my God, the world has just become perfect. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get Michael Jackson at all until much later when I started uh, DJing. And I, I used to DJ at a 50s and 60s yeah. diner thing in, in the West End in London. We were supposed to play just kind of doo-wop and things like that yeah. and rock and roll, but we ended up just playing everything that was good from yeah. the 60s and even the 70s. So then I got into Motown and all that yeah. stuff and, and realised how good Michael Jackson was. Yeah, because I was, you know, west of Ireland town, yeah. you know, all super straight boy stuff. So I, I was considered really weird and suspicious for being into Michael Jackson. But like, you know, I got so obsessed, like I was having American friends digging out cassettes of Jackson 5, you know, rare stuff, you know. I really became obsessed with him, yeah. Yeah, well, this is a theme that keeps cropping up in the conversations I have with people for this podcast of what do you do when the object of your fandom turns out to be someone who's living a, a questionable private life. Yeah, but for me, actually, I started to fall out of love with the music. Okay. You know, once you get into the Dangerous album, that kind of stuff. Yes. And, and so I already was having a divorce in some ways. So Bad, you were still on board, though, were you? Yeah, but Bad was actually the first crack started to show for yeah. me. And, and it's funny, to me, you know, I, I have compartmentalized him totally as in the Michael Jackson that I loved and the later Michael Jackson, who to me is a different kind of thing. Yeah. But there was a time, you know, I think around the off the wall especially, but also around Thriller, where his weirdness was charming. Mm -hmm. And later on, it, it certainly wasn't charming. It became very obvious that he'd had quite extreme surgery. Yeah, yeah. And it was, uh, it was obvious to everyone that it was such a shame that he was... Uh, because he, he looked great. Yeah, he I mean, totally it's, it's did, a yeah. cliche about it, but... It didn't take too much thought to figure out that he must have been very unhappy to want to change himself to that degree. Yeah, to that degree. Because, because everybody wants to change themselves a little, yeah. you know. We all sneer about that and dismiss all that and say, oh, he went too far and he did that. But on the other hand, would he, it's hard to know, would he have had some of the sort of success that he had if he hadn't? Because that was all part of his weird appeal. Uh-huh. You know, if he had always looked like... Jermaine Jackson. Yeah. 
It's hard to picture Jermaine Jackson being that kind of stratospheric superstar because there's something about being that stratospheric where we're, you know, oddness or, or not being human-like in some way is part of it. Yes. You know, and Bowie had that too. The otherworldly quality. Yeah, yeah, where he's not like us. He literally is not like us. Yes. Whereas I think, you know, if you look at, you know, I'm just using Jermaine <laughs> because that's how Michael might have kind of looked like. The most normal Jermaine just looks like one of us, yeah. you know? And, and, and I think if you think of all those sort of mega stars who have lasted the time, they nearly all have that quality. Like Dolly Parton's another good example. Uh-huh. She doesn't look like anybody. You know, she only looks like Dolly Parton. Yes. Is it possible to sustain that sort of megastardom over a long period and look just like us? Mm. But Bowie, I suppose, was more in control of the changes that were happening in oh, his life. he definitely was. Whereas Michael seemed like almost a victim. Yeah, I mean, it's so complicated because then you could say, for example, you could look at Janet Jackson and yeah. she's done quite a bit to herself yeah. too. But we don't... Well, you know, she obviously didn't go to quite the same extremes, but mm. also we don't judge women in quite the same way about it, which is no. interesting. When did you get into Michael Jackson then, when you were like 10 or something? Yeah, when I was very young. My older sister had some Jackson 5 stuff. And it's funny because the two people I became obsessed with at that age were both, you know, in and around my age, or relatively close to my age, was Michael Jackson and Jodie Foster. Oh. Jodie Foster was the child star. and What was the film that got you into her? She had these ones, uh, Witch Top Mountain ones, where, she, where there's yeah. like a spacey alien escape thing, from Escape Witch Top Mountain. And I just so... It's funny, actually, that then she turned out to be lesbian, because I wonder if that was there somewhere down there as a part of... But to me, she was, you know, she was around my age. Yeah. And I totally, oh, my God, you know, and she was a superstar, you know. And Had you seen Bugsy Malone? Bugsy Malone, my God, I lived and died yeah. by that movie Same for ages. Yeah, I loved yeah. it. And then, of course, as soon as I was old enough to probably illegally be watching Taxi Driver, you know. And it's just funny. And, and the two of them remained. The two people that I first started yeah. to you know, identify with as stars remained famous. What was the t- name of the town that you, where you grew up? Ballinrobe. Alan Robe. Yeah. I've watched a documentary about you, The Queen of <laughs> Ireland. I don't know very much about Ireland yeah. at all. Like, I've only been here twice. It's my second time yeah. in Dublin. But uh, the impression that I get superficially is of quite a conservative culture, yeah. a fairly religious culture. Well, you know, I would say that actually that's not really so true anymore. Uh-huh. Obviously, Ireland has changed sure. dramatically. But when you were growing up. But when I was growing up, you know, that definitely was true. I mean, I was, you know, born in the 60s, in 68. Mm-hmm. So I was growing up in the 1970s. And Ireland at that time was still deeply, you know, it was the Hollywood version of Ireland still, especially a small town in the west of Ireland. So it's pretty much almost a classless society in some ways. But there was one upper class in the, in the town. That was the vet, the doctor, the bank manager, and the priest. Okay. They were the four that were put in a separate little box. And um, my father was the local vet. And so being the vet's child, you know, I was sort of in that little box already. Yeah. You know, about being slightly different or something. Well, that's how I felt about it anyway. But yeah, I was totally old school conservative, going to masses and the confessions and the communions and confirmations and the... You know, the day of the year that everybody goes to the graveyard and I was an altar boy and at Easter I was the altar boy for the nuns in the convent and, yeah, the the, the works. 
I, my early primary school was taught by nuns, yeah. mercy nuns. My middle sort of primary school years were taught by Christian brothers. And my secondary school, high school, was Franciscans. Right. Like, I had the full pack. And were they generally pleasant? You know, they're a mixed bunch. You know, the impression you get now is that they were all horrifying, terrible monsters. Yeah. And there certainly were those. I went to a couple of convents and they were very nice. Yeah, I mean, well... In, in Wales, this was, right? You know... There was, a, there was a thing, you know, even as kids, where the, you knew the year you were dreading. Yeah. Um, because that class was taught by whichever infamous nun or Christian right. brother. <laughs> um, I mean, we, there was a very violent Christian brother in my primary school. And, yeah. and he, in later years, ended up being prosecuted and everything. Um, but for me, it really crystallized in my high school years because uh-huh. I went to boarding school. Um, now... Whenever you say that to somebody, especially an English person, I think they think of faggots and, and all of that stuff. You know, and a boarding school in Ireland run yeah. by Franciscans is nothing like that, like deeply conservative, you know, not a sniff of a bit of bum sex, you know, nothing, you know. Yeah. And mine was pretty conservative. Like we weren't allowed to play foreign sports, so you weren't allowed to play soccer, for example. Quite right. Um, <laughs> this was in know, like late 70s and yeah. early 80s, I would have been there. And this is before all of the scandals in the church here and before all of the sex abuse stuff and all of that. Mm-hmm. But even then, we all knew as boys which Franciscans was the ones to be wary of and which one was, you know, interfering with the other boys. And all the adults knew it too. You know, they, How did you know that? Though? Because of just rumours? And- well, there was one particular guy, and I can name him because he ended up, you know, being prosecuted and everything. Um, and I think he's dead now, actually. Um, his name was Father Ronald. Uh-huh. And... Um, they would call him the bursar. So at the beginning of the year, your parents would give him a little money. And during the year, if you needed money to buy table tennis balls or whatever it was you needed, you know, he was like a little banker. And all of the priests had an office. And outside, they had these little um, traffic lights. And you would press the bell. And if the light went red, it meant, feck off, you know, I'm busy. <laughs> if it went green, it meant, come in. And if it was orange, it meant, wait a moment. Uh-huh. And That's a good system. Yeah. So you go down to his office, but he had this other job, which was he was the sex education guy, which oh, is just so incredible. And so all first years and second years, twice a year, they were, had to go to his office yeah. for, for the talks. And so all of the boys would be in these giant uh, study halls in the evening, you know, whatever, 200 boys in each hall or whatever, all studying, with another Franciscan priest supervising it, all deathly silent. And then over the tannoy system would come Father Ronald's voice and he would say, would Rory O'Neill please come to my office or whatever. And we all knew what that meant. It meant Rory O'Neill's getting the sex talk. And then as you get up and go to his office, you know, the other 199 boys would make masturbation noises. They go... <laughs> with their mouths like that, you know, and then the Franciscan in charge would be, you know, trying to dampen it all down. Yeah. You know, but that Franciscan knew what we were referring to. Now, I, he never touched me, which I always wondered, you know, I was a mouthy kid and, and maybe he recognized my gayness and knew that I would, I don't know, talk about it or something, I don't know. So he usually picked on the kind of weaker guys or the boys who didn't really have many friends or who were sort of socially awkward. But we all knew, and everybody would come back, and then we'd all gather around their table during the study break to find out, did anything happen, and if so, what happened? You know, it was totally open. Oh, my God. And, um, and I always have this really very clear memory once. So, so this guy gets called down, and he's like one of those. He didn't really have any friends. He was really awkward. 
you know, he would dress in little suits and everything, you know, and I remember him coming back and he was quietly crying and there's 199 cruel boys making, you know, that right. noise. Anyway, so when all the sort of scandals emerged and everything, people started talking about that stuff. But it always annoys me, you know, I know that we can say it was a different time and people didn't really understand the effect that might have on young people and all that. But it does annoy me when we pretend that people didn't know as if these paedophiles were operating in secret. They weren't. It was an open secret. Perhaps some people just didn't believe it. I mean, I think there might be some of that in it. Because, you know, gossip and malicious gossip is so much a part of being a young person anyway. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, of course, now there is also a tendency just to condemn them all in a big suede. And I also look back with a much more grave view of it, because in some ways there was another priest, for example, he liked to put the boys on his knee and cuddle and all of that. But it never felt in any way threatening or weird. To me, I think he was just a lonely guy who'd lived his life, you know, with no physical attention from anybody. You know, he was a celibate, you know, Franciscan. And I think he got some joy out of the physical cuddling and tickling and all of that. And I think now people would look at him and, and think terrible things and be, you know, mm-hmm. the internet would destroy him, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas I never felt with him any fear about it or weirdness. It was a little weird, you know, whatever, maybe, I, you know. But there was nothing threatening about that. I think he was just enjoying some physical contact. He was a man who probably in his whole adult life never really had a hug, you know what I mean? Right, right. And, and of course, that's entirely different than from what Father Ronald was doing down in his office to boys. Yeah. So when all of that stuff came out, and of course there was other scandals, like two of our most famous priests here, because, you know, in Ireland was a country where individual priests could be famous, because one was a singing priest, mm-hmm. you know, who'd go around the country singing and everything, and another then was our um, cardinal, and uh, both of them, around, you know, within the space of a couple of years, turned out they had hidden women lovers and had had children and had kept the children secret from everybody and had used church money to raise these kids and everything. And so all of these things in the last 25 years absolutely decimated the power of the church here, mm. and, um, which, of course, I think is a good thing. But I think sometimes outsiders don't know that and they still think we're in 1970. Yeah, yeah. So religion was never something that you were that preoccupied by yourself. It didn't, it didn't have its hooks in you too badly so that you were consumed by guilt and, and shame or anything. No, no. I mean, I, I was always had a healthy dose of cynicism about it, or certainly once I hit my teenage years. But I was very much, you know, a cultural Catholic and... It took me years to think it was all right to not bless myself when I passed a church just because that's you know, drilled into you and as a kid. Mm. Certainly, you know, when I started finding out I was queer and all of that and started having sex and stuff, there definitely was some lingering Catholic guilt, but actually I sort of missed that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it just it added it, spice it, to it the did. whole thing. It sort yeah. of made it a bit more exciting. <laughs> you know, um, you know I, I think a, a little Catholic guilt isn't bad for your sex life. Yeah. Sure, yeah. That's right, a bit of mystery, a bit of a sense of transgression. Yeah. And how old were you then when you sort of became aware that you were gay? Nowadays, it seems impossible to believe this, but I didn't really know what was different about me. And until I was in my late teens, which seems incredible now when, you know, a 14-year-old, two clicks of his mouse and he's watching Brazilian boys fucking each other. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But I had never met a gay person. And there was no gay people on TV. There was except the, caricatures, yes, except John Inman and Exactly. Like the yes. only one I remember is um, John Inman and Are You Being Served? And he was just there to be a butt of jokes and yeah. followed around by canned laughter. But I'd never, never met a real, live, living gay person. Uh-huh. Like, I always say, you know, it, this seems incredible now, but when village people were on top of the pops and having their big hits, like, 
you know, in my town, we didn't think that they were gay. We just thought they were a bunch of lads who liked to dress up for fun. You know, sure. because we had no frame of reference for a leather queen. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It, it meant nothing to us. Right, so he's dressed as a construction worker and he's dressed in I some sort I, of motorbike I, I, outfit. You right, know, like, right. I think I thought nothing. that as well. It's just like they're fancy dress guys. Yes. <laughs> and, and like even, I have such a clear memory of the first time that boy George was on top of the pops. And the next day in school, there was, you know, huge conversation about it. But the conversation was about whether he was a man or a woman. That's right. The idea that he might have just been a flaming queen never entered our minds. Same here. You know? Yeah. Um, I was like, what? I just wanted to know, like, wait, wait, wait. I just, I genuinely don't <laughs> yeah. understand. Is he a guy <laughs> who's dressing up like this or is it a woman who looks a bit odd? What's the deal? Exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, of course, you, you, know, you say that to a 20-year-old and 18-year-old yeah. now and they just think, you know, you were living in the dark age. That's right. But it's honestly, the way it was. And then when did you come out to your parents? And I got the impression, for, again, from watching the documentary about you, that they are very loving yes, parents. Yes, they are, yeah. And they were never going to reject you, throw you out, freak out in that way. No. Now, I, I never imagined for a minute that they were going to throw me out of the house or anything like that. Yeah. But it was still an, a huge, nervy thing to tell them because my parents are very religious. Uh-huh. And they're very... Now, they were never... Carrie's mom, you know what I mean? They weren't waving crucifixes around or anything, but they go to Mass. You know, my, my mother goes to Mass every day. Yeah. And my mother is a minister of the Eucharist. You know, she gives out the communion. Oh, yes. And she would clean the church with the other ladies. Um, my parents kneel down beside their bed every night and say prayers. Yeah. You know, they're proper Irish Catholics. So there was always just this concern, and, and it's probably unfair to them, really, but you just can't help it. You know, there's yeah. a fear about it. So I told my siblings first. When I told my mother, I actually blurted it out to her unplanned. We were in a car and she said something that I misinterpreted. And I thought what she was saying was, I know you're gay, just tell me. But she wasn't saying that at all, it turns out. So I just blurted out. And for three days, she just sat on it. And then we had a proper conversation about it when my dad wasn't there. And my mother had... The usual things that mothers have, you know, she thought I was going to grow old and be lonely, and, you know, she was worried in that way. And I never doubted for a second that she loved me, but my mother did take a few years to really get her head around it because it was in conflict with what she'd been, everything she'd been brought up to believe. What sort of helped her to get started on, on getting her head around it was her brother is, in some ways, her best friend, in some ways, and he's a Catholic priest in England, mm -hmm. and he has been a Catholic priest in England for, whatever, 50 years or something. And, of course, in Ireland, being a Catholic priest put you into that special box with the doctor and the... And priests used to, in this country, march around as if they owned the place, and everyone doffed their hat to them, and, you know, the priests practically ran the place. Nowadays, it's gone the other way, that I think a lot of priests are afraid to wear their collar in public because they get abuse in the street. But uh -huh. Catholic priests never had that in the UK. They were always the minority little group, whatever. And, and my uncle, a lot of his job is almost like running a community centre. You know, it's, yeah. they have the weddings and the baptisms and all of that, and there's a little pub attached to the, you know, the, the hall and all that. So he's always, of course, had a more relaxed, heathen, British, Protestant, not God-fearing attitude to, to, to homosexuality, you know, and gays, and, yeah. um, and so many other things. So my mother called him, and he basically told her to get over it. Right. And I think that started her to work it out. Did she ever have a conversation with you where it was like, 
I'm just worried you're going to go to hell. No, she, I mean, my parents, they are deeply personally religious, but they've never been that way. Okay, you know, they're okay, not, yeah. they never bashed it over the head of the ring. So it was just the practical considerations. My mum said the same thing to me at one stage, I remember, when we were talking about sex. And she sort of said, you know, and some people are gay. And I was like, right, okay, I've heard about people being gay. And, and I was like, well, how do you feel about that? And she said, well, um, you know, there's lots of very nice gay people. But the only thing is that it's a very, very lonely life yeah. and, um, and, and a terribly sad life because, uh, you know, you can never have children and all this. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what my mother, like, I sometimes give out to gays, you know, because they're especially young gays who they, you know, they go home at Christmas or something and they announce at the Christmas table that they're gay and then, you know, dad opens his mouth and says something that's not perfect and then it spins out of control and they have a big row, you know, whatever. <laughs> and I always say two things. You know, first of all, it probably took you five, six, seven, ten, I don't know how many years to come to terms with it, your fucking self. Yeah. And you're the gay one. So why do you expect your dad to be just the perfect Hollywood dad about it in a split second? You know, it's unfair to just splurt it out over the turkey and yeah. then condemn him because he didn't say exactly the right thing or because, he, you know, he says some stupid things or, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, it's just unfair. Um, so I used to, well, the internet's kind of ruined this email, but I used to say, write a bloody letter. Because a letter isn't instant. You can compose your thoughts perfectly, explain exactly, you know, your coming out can be the perfectly written coming out. And then your parents can get it, and they don't have to respond that second uh -huh. and say something that they wouldn't if they'd had a minute to think about it. Of course, nowadays, with instant uh, WhatsApps and all of that, that's sort of been ruined. So coming out, I think, is, more, is harder. My dad was incredible, because he came in for his lunch, well, for his dinner. He went dinner in the middle of the day in the west of Ireland. And my mum told him first. She went out to the car when she heard him coming in, and she told him. And he came in and said to me, oh, well, don't you be worrying about what I think. And that was literally the only thing he said about it. It didn't bother him a split second in any way. And I, for a while, was suspicious that he only acted that way for my mother's benefit, that he thought, oh, my wife is upset, so I'll just act super cool about it. Yeah. But I've, I've spoken to him since, you know, he says, no, it just never bothered him. And he was the kind of man, you know, of his generation, he used to use the word queer and all that, and I sort of asked him about that. And I said, yeah, but how could you be that cool about it? Like, you used to say, you know, queer and that. And he said, yes, but, you know, in my world, queer really means odd, and to me, gay people, it was odd. It was different. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, you know, whatever. But I, he said, I never meant it in any way maliciously or anything. And I sometimes wonder if it has something to do with being a vet. <laughs> uh -huh. Now, you'll probably you know, introduce me to some horribly homophobic vet and prove me wrong, but I just kind of feel that there's something about, you know, he's a large animal vet, you know, on the side of a Mayo mountain. And, and you see nature at its absolute most up close and in its messiest and dirtiest and weirdest. And nature is unboxable. It is gross and extreme and weird yeah. and wonderful and amazing and exciting and thrilling. You, you see the best and the worst of it, you know, the horrible diseases that happen to poor sheep yeah. for no God reason and the, you know, the beautiful things that happen as well. You know, whatever. And somehow I wonder, does, does knowing that or seeing nature like that every single day up so close, does it just give you a relaxed attitude that life's, you know, multifaceted yeah, and nature weird and unboxable? and finds its own way. Yeah, and, and some people are gay. You yeah. know, I, you know, I, I sometimes wonder that. But then, like I said, I'm sure there are, you know, horribly anti-gay vets out there somewhere. Yeah.
You know, you don't hear about too many horrible vets. No. no anyway, anyway, it's one of my lesser-known theories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jingle break, it's a break from the podcast. In between the next bit and the bit that was last. Every now and then you have to take a little rest. Otherwise you're going to get tired and depressed. Take a look around, think that you exist. Think about the person you last kissed. Right, that's enough. Now think about keys. Think about sausages. Think about trees. Think all day. We are sat in your club right now, mm. the Panty Bar. Yeah. How long has this been running? And it'll be nine years in November. That's cool, man. That's hard to run a bar, isn't it? Well, what it is is I had spent years working in bars and nightclubs. That's yeah. how I you know, spent, whatever, 30 years doing it or something. And it was always other people's bars and nightclubs. And as I was sort of approaching 40... I was thinking, well, what does an ageing drag queen do? Now, I'd already started moving into the theatre and that sort of stuff. Mm. But I think I could hear my mum and my dad. You know, what's going to happen when you're old? You know, whatever, the usual thing. So the obvious answer for an ageing drag queen is to open a bar. And an opportunity presented itself, and I thought, well, OK. But, of course, I thought... You know, I had the little Coronation Street idea. You know, that it'd be easy and nice and whatever. But we opened... Six months before Ireland's economic Armageddon. Uh-huh. So it was super hard the first few years, like so hard. You know, so many bars and clubs in the city closed down and people stopped going out. We lost half our customers to London, Berlin, Sydney. Yeah. So it was really hard, but it got easier over time. And now, you know, nine years later, it's much easier. And I'm very lucky. I, you know, Shane, the bar manager, you know, has been here since day one, and really he runs it. It should be called Shane Bar. Yeah. Um, he runs it on a day-to-day basis. So I'm lucky now. I just I don't really worry about it. Um, I used to do shows here every weekend, but as I got older and you know, whatever, and I travel a lot, obviously, with my other work, So, but I'm lucky that I, I can. I can bugger off to Australia for a month, you know, with the show or whatever, and I don't really worry about it. I just check in a, mm. a bit. Um, but I know it'll still be standing when I get back. It's cool. Yeah. I was a bartender for a long time, and I always thought if absolutely everything else went tits up, I'd, uh, I'd open a bar. Not to say that that's like the last resort <laughs> yeah. option, but that was always an attractive option for yeah. me. You know, I always thought, yeah, it's, I loved working in bars, and I loved hanging out and, and yeah. bar culture in general. It was always fun. And you spent a long time in Tokyo. I did, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when, what made you go out there, and how old were you? I had been a student in art college here in the 80s. Yeah. And Dublin in the 1980s, oh my God, it was so grey and depressing and, you know, there was no work and there was no fun as far as, you know, whatever. And I think if you were gay as well, like, you know, it was really pretty grim. Or at least I felt it was at the time. So I finished college and I was getting out of here, you know, and I was either going to go to the usual places, London or... Paris or wherever. So mm-hmm. I always wanted to go big and exciting. And, um, and I had spent my summers working in London or in France or whatever. And I had a brother in London, so that would have been the obvious choice. But uh, then I read this book about train journeys in China mm. um, by the travel writer Paul Theroux. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
It was called Riding the Iron Rooster or the Red Rooster. And uh, it's about train journeys in China. And I had uh, this other friend, this girl called Helen, and she's also pretty adventurous. And um, she's actually much more adventurous than I am. But, um, and she read the book too. And we were like, that kind of sounds exciting. And this was, you know, before the fall of the Soviet Union. We thought, that seems exciting. Let's do that. You know, we were 20, 21, whatever. So nothing seemed weird or impossible. You know, we just did it. So, so we, we then decided we were going to get the Trans-Siberian Express and we were going to go across China. And, um, and then we realized, well, we can't stay there. But then what we do? We, you know, we thought, oh, well, at the time, you could go to Tokyo and teach English was the thing, you know? Right. <clears throat> this is all pre-internet. And uh, <laughs> it sounds so crazy now, but, you know, we had no visas. We had no right to be in Soviet Russia. We had no right to be in China or all those things. Um, and, and no idea how to start, but somewhere we'd heard a rumor or you know, read in some magazine or something that somewhere that there was a professor in a university in Hungary, in, in Budapest, who could get you sort of vaguely illegal, vaguely legal, I don't know, tickets for the Trans-Siberian Express. Okay. And um, so we decided what we'd do is we tried to get to Japan by train. That was going to be our adventure. So that's what we did. And we just went to Budapest and had to hang around for like, I don't know, two or three months, just trying to find this possibly didn't exist professor. And in the end, we did find him. Right. <laughs> and he did sort of, well, you know, he wrote something on a piece of paper. And then we just got on a train to Moscow, even though we had no paperwork or anything. The last thing they were worried about was two teen, you know, right. Irish 20-year-olds with horrible haircuts. So what was he know. writing out for you then? What was it well, that he was he, facilitating? He gave us an address and this, it was all, you know, whatever, in uh, Russian, we hadn't a clue. Yeah. So we just got to this Moscow train station and you got off the train from Budapest. You know, there's no advertising, there's no nothing, you know, it's proper Soviet Russia. We just give this piece of paper to, uh, you know, a, a taxi-looking man mm -hmm. and he takes us to a building and we go in and there's a funny little office in there we hand over the letter that he wrote for us, and they gave us a ticket. Right. All handwritten, everything was handwritten. And so then we went and we got the Trans-Siberian Express and spent a few weeks going through whatever, Mongolia and... And that was the only way you, could, you couldn't turn up at the station and just, like, buy a ticket? Not that we knew of, yeah. It was all very cloak and dagger. And, you know, and, and everybody has a job, yeah. and half of those jobs are checking who you are and what you have with you. And so we on the advice of anybody we met in Budapest, we just turned up with bags of nylon, stockings, and Marlboro cigarettes. To trade. And we just traded our yeah, way yeah. through everywhere. It was all just from reading a book and just being, you know, fearless young people. You know, my mother had known, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, and we got to Japan eventually. I started teaching English at first. Um, but I pretty soon fell into doing drag again. Yeah. And oh, so you'd already been doing that in the... I'd been in doing, I, I had actually been doing drag as a college student and doing a little bit of in the clubs here or whatever. I had studied design, but, you know, by the end, I knew I'd rather kill myself than be a graphic designer. <laughs> Performing in clubs had started taking a much bigger yeah. part. Um, and that actually all comes from London, too, because I had spent a summer live, working in London and living with my brother, and my brother was very good friends with Lee Bowery. A oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I was 18 or whatever, and Lee was the most incredible person I'd ever met Did in my you life. Meet, oh, right, so you met him? mind, yeah. Yeah. On literally the very first night when I arrived in London, my brother had a party. You know, this is my little brother. He's, a, he was, he's gay, too, my older brother. Yeah. And Lee was at the party. And so for the rest of the summer, you know, I was working in a restaurant in Covent Garden, 
And I would finish up work at night and then go to these clubs that to me were just so mind-blowing. You know, whatever, the Daisy Chain in Brixton or Bang or whatever, all these yeah. sort of big gay clubs. You know, and Lee would be working there and he'd look after me and knowing Lee, you know, was a sort of an entrance into a whole other world of excitement. And it just blew my mind, you know, and I don't know how many of your listeners know much about Lee, but just Google Lee Bowery and your, your mind will be blown. Um, so that's actually what got me interested in it. Sure. Um, anyway, so I started doing it in college and, you know, making the odd few quid, a bit of pocket money and all of that. Uh, but when I found to Japan, I had no plans to be doing it per se, but one of the very first people I met and, you know, became immediate besties with was an American drag queen. So we started doing a double act. He was originally from Atlanta, Georgia, and oh, he had yeah. come out of the same scene, you know, RuPaul's from Atlanta and all that. So he come out of that scene. Yeah. Right, okay. We started doing a double act, and so for four years we did a double act, our USP, you know, was that we were foreign, you know, so you know, that you was were interesting. Gaijin. Yes. So we traded on that shamelessly for four years, and... Um, just did the clubs and all of that. And then because we were foreign, you know, we'd, they'd stick us in pop videos and whatever. We yeah. did a little tour with Cindy Lauper. No way. Yes. She had brought out some sort of remix album or something, our greatest hits. And on it, there was a, a sort of a reggae-tinged version of Girl Just Want to Have Fun. Uh-huh. And she released that as a single. So whatever, <laughs> year, early 90s. You know, it was probably 10 years since yeah. the first out or something. I don't remember. And, and she made a new video for it, um, which had a bunch of drag queens in it. So when she came to Japan, she wanted foreign drag queens, mm. you know. Um, so that was us. Oh, reggae-tinged remix yeah, album. Yeah, That's I, a tantalizing I, well, prospect. That, I don't think the whole album is reggae-tinged, <laughs> but, but the, the, the... Yeah, that know, track. The, that track was, yeah. Have you been back to Tokyo since? I have. Now, not as often as I would like to. Um, and do you have, find yeah. that it's... Because I was there with, um, with my sort of comedy wife, Jo... Um, years ago, in around 2003, we did a, a show for BBC Three out there. We were out there for about 10 weeks mm-hmm. and uh, made a huge impression on me. I really, were you in Tokyo? Or? Yeah, we were in Tokyo, uh, yeah. yeah. It's an amazing place. Staying in the yeah. Roppongi district yeah. near the Tokyo Tower. And I really loved it. Yeah. But it seemed like somewhere that was... I mean, then... Joe, who's much taller than I am, he was like a celebrity there because he was so yeah. much taller than most of the people there. Yeah. And they would just stare at him like, whoa, look at this guy. So, yeah, I can't imagine what it was like with that plus uh, <laughs> looking like, as you describe yourself, a giant cartoon woman. Well, it's funny because they have a very odd attitude or a very different attitude to sex and sexuality than we do. Yeah. So on one le- they don't believe in the concept of sin. So there's no moral judgment about it. So if you want to be a drag queen and, you know, or two guys want to shag or whatever, there's no moral judgment about that in that sense. They don't think that that's right or wrong. It just is. So in that sense, they're very open. But in the sense that anybody who somehow is not conforming to the general way of things. So anybody who's like has a gay lifestyle, if I can put, say that, uh-huh. um, you know, who's not getting a little office worker wife and settling down in the suburbs and having the two kids and, you know, all of that stuff, that is considered really nuts. Uh-huh. And so although their attitude to the actual sex acts is totally cool, their attitude to everything else is is much stronger than ours. So, so, so it's very difficult to be gay in, in Japan. It's considered absolutely out there. So how are those two things reconciled? Well, they're not really. 
you know, there's lots of gay people on the TV and all of that, but they don't want their son to be gay in any way, you know. So it's hard to be gay in Japan. Mm. But the other thing, of course, is that they have a very relaxed and long, serious historical tradition of men dressing up as women. Uh-huh, yeah, of course. You know, in, all, in, in no and kabuki Indeed. and all of that. So um, although obviously the kind of club drag that we were doing isn't the same, at the same time, they don't, it doesn't, shock them or weird them out. They just think it's all fun. It's an odd one. In some ways, they're very relaxed about these things, but then in other ways, they're much more uptight about it than mm. we are. But also, being a foreigner there, you know, the rules are relaxed for you anyway. Okay. And you have much more freedom to behave in ways that they would think are odd. Yeah. So, I mean, I absolutely loved my time there and, you know, it was exciting. It's really a great place. And, yeah. How long were you out there for in total then? Uh, just under five years. Oh, that's quite a while. Mm. How was it coming back then after that? Well, it's funny. I, um, I came back for a couple of reasons. One of them, I actually, I became ill. And the doctor said, you need to just rest for a couple of months. And I just couldn't do that in Tokyo anyway. But also around that time, I was thinking, my time is probably coming to an end there. Five years, you think, okay, well, I want to go to Paris now or whatever mm -hmm. it was. But there was also for me a thing... Um, and I think about it a lot sometimes when I see immigrant communities here who look immigrant in the sense, if you can say that, is that in Japan, even though I've been there for five years nearly, I realized that I was never going to be Japanese. Mm -hmm. And I would never be thought of in that way. Even if your Japanese is perfect and even if you did get the office lady wife and all that stuff, it doesn't matter. And every time you step onto the train there, you're always the foreigner. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, do I want to live all of my life where every time I step onto the train, everybody assumes I'm a tourist? Mm -hmm. And that was one of the reasons why I thought, you know, I think my time is up. So I absolutely love it. And I, I love Japanese people and I had such a great time. And I have lots of super great friends to this day from that time. And, but did I want to live there forever? No, I didn't. So you came back to Dublin? Yeah. Yeah, and it was uh, quite a different place than the one you'd left. I came back and I thought, I'm just going to hang out for a while, see some people, and then I was going to go off. But the Dublin I came back to was entirely different than the one I'd left only five years beforehand. And so this was around what year? It was going to be 95. So it was the early part of the Celtic Tiger, you know, the boom, uh -huh. Ireland's economic boom. And for the first time, I felt that Dublin was suddenly like full of like possibilities things were happening you know um, it was physically changing you know there was cranes everywhere things were going up everything was changing and for the first time ever young people weren't just emigrating you know the whole irish emigration thing of course that has been economically driven but it's also part of the national culture it's expected it's a small island so as soon as you finish school you go off and, yeah. you, and you might come back and but for the first time ever because there was so much work here and money here your club culture had really taken off in a big way. And um, it just felt like a really exciting place to be. And so the first time ever, I thought, God, I think I might stay here. This is fun, you know. And I did. And for a good 10 years, you know, you could make, really make things happen here. Um, and your main source of income at that point was performing. Was it, yeah, entirely, yeah. really. Well, performing and promoting club nights, yeah. you know, that were sort of all tied up together. Um, and you've earned a certain level of notoriety in <laughs> yeah. Tokyo. And so did that come fairly quickly back in Dublin? 
Yeah, you know, Dublin is still a small city, so it's easy to make a mark really quickly if you really try hard. But um, I have this great old friend, Niall, from college. He's an absolute genius graphic designer. But um, we started, you know, promoting performancey type club nights. Uh, like art happenings, almost. Yes, they were sort of somewhere between an art thing and a club. Yeah. So people were drinking and dancing and taking drugs or whatever, but there'd be nuttery going on and installations and whatever. And... And that was sort of new to Dublin, this whole thing where they, everybody would dress up, you know, and wear crazy outfits to go to things. So we did a lot of that, and then we, we started a fetish club just because we thought, that sounds like a fun idea, and, you know, bizarrely, the next thing you know, it's really popular and nutty. Um, and we would do these kind of extreme performances designed to sort of shock people, you know. What were some of the ones you remember of those? God, well, they mostly involved me taking things out of my ass. So <laughs> we would do things like... Um, I'd be lip-syncing to Dolly Parton doing 9 to 5 and, yeah. and Niall would be dressed up as like a boss and I'd be like a secretary and he would pull the lyrics of the song out of my ass like a sort of a karaoke <laughs> machine, you know, which actually takes a lot of planning sure. to, to, to make that work. And you've got or, to get special paper. Yes, there was a lot of technical details. Um, <laughs> we did another one. The most famous one we used to do was called Pearl Harbor and I think it's really one where, you know, I'd be on one of those, you know those things that revolve a car in a showroom? Oh, yes. So you're obviously on that and then he would pull this long string of pearls out of, out of my ass. And we did millions of variations on it, like shoving minced meat in my mouth, and then he'd turn a handle on my back and pull sausages out the back. Uh. Like, <laughs> all these kind of just nutty things, which were just designed to loosen people up. Because I think, you know, if you go along and you, you start to see something, and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe they did that. Yeah. It then sort of gives you permission to be as wild as you want to be or whatever. Uh-huh. But of course then, as I got older, those things... Lost their allure... Well, more just like, you know, there's things you can do just for the crazy fun of it when you're in your 20s or whatever that, you know, if you're doing them in your 40s, look a bit grim, you know? Yeah. So, um, also, you start to lose muscle control. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we kept on doing that. But then over time, I, we grew up and we started doing more serious type events, whatever. Yeah. And then I sort of moved, started moving my shows into the theater anyway, and, or sort of the comedy slash theater space. And... Uh, and eventually then I was at the sort of space where, you know, Panty was very well known by that sort of arty community or the clubbing community or the gay community, whatever. Yeah. And I just plodded along doing, doing my thing for, you know, forever. And then, of course, you know, I don't know how much you know about it, but then eventually what happened was, you know, I became a national fucking treasure. Like, it's all so weird these days, you know. Panty's a full-on establishment character and yeah. Trinity College gives her honorary doctorates and she opens science fairs. Like, it's just so odd. And was that something, we'll talk about that in a second, was that something that came from that... Uh, interview on the chat show initially was that where that all started well it's hard to pinpoint exactly where it started but yes that's what that's exploded the, it. right yeah. that was the watershed uh, you were hiv positive yeah, yeah 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 at what point were you diagnosed then it wasn't that long after i came back from japan so 95 or 96 probably 96 i think was that part of the reason why you weren't feeling well in japan yes i think it was but i didn't know that at the time right and what, it's hard to remember now exactly what it was like getting a diagnosis in those days. At the time, it was a death sentence. Yeah. I always laugh about it because um, I wasn't expecting it, and it was probably stupid of me, but I just, I literally wasn't. And, I, you know, and I'd been to lots of AIDS funerals and, you know, whatever. My doctor called me and asked me to come in and see him at 5 p.m. He was very specific. And I now know, I didn't at the time, but I'm warning you now, if your doctor ever asks you to come in specifically at 5 p.m., it means it's bad news. Because Why he, 5 p.m.? Because he doesn't want there to be other people outside waiting. Oh. He doesn't know how you're going to take it and how long he's going to be in there with you, so he doesn't want another appointment. He doesn't want to have to say to you, uh, 
okay, you got to go now, dying yeah. guy. Did they have councillors stood by in those days? No, they absolutely didn't. Now, my GP is a lovely man, and so I go into him. He gives me this news, which essentially what he's saying to me is, you're going to be dead in the next few years. You know, if you're lucky, it might be five, maybe even ten if you're spectacularly lucky. But, you know, he, I could see he was hating having to tell me mm -hmm. whatever. And no, so he tells me, and I, you know, you walk back out the door. But I also, myself, I knew lots of people who had died, and so I knew exactly what it meant or whatever. What was the moment like, though? Did you feel faint, or did you...? You know, I think everyone thinks, oh, my God, something giant has just happened to you, and it's going to be a transformative experience. To me, it's very... What I really remember looking back is him. I remember how awkward he was about it and all of that. And I mean, I do have one of those slightly things where I... I know exactly where everything was in the room. Mm -hmm. You know, I can still picture his pen and, and all that stuff. But actually what happened is I walked out of his office. It was like this lovely summer afternoon. And everything's just going around. And my overwhelming thing was actually fury. How the fuck can you be wandering around going into Tesco? When you know, my as if world nothing had happened. Collapsed, yeah. and, I, I, and something has just fucking happened. You know, that's sort of my feeling about it. But then what happened, you know, then I went to the clinic, you know, he sends you off to the, the clinic, and I'm, all these years later, I'm still at this, that clinic. It was the grimmest place in the world. It was just full of sick and dying people. At the time, there was still hemophiliacs still hanging on, a lot of drug addicts and the gays, you know, like the oddest bunch of people. At the time, they were throwing AZT at everybody. I don't know if you know, there was the first drug that they thought might do something now. It turned out it did fucking nothing. except maybe make it worse, I think. But, um... So they were just gave you a pile of AZT, and then you go in next door and there's a counsellor. That's my real memory of it, because the counsellor's job at the time was to... It was like they were sort of putting you on a conveyor belt, and they were easing you on, and the conveyor belt was going to end, you know, in your funeral. That was the attitude about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she starts listing off all the sort of benefits I can get. You can get a blanket allowance, you know, because they were just assuming I wasn't going to be working anymore. So they moved on to the practicalities immediately. Yes, yeah. And I, I remember sitting there and she's going on about all this stuff. Blanket allowance and just all this stuff. And I was just like, they've made a mistake. I feel fine, yeah. you know. You know, you've made a mistake. But actually, it, well, there's two things about it. And I think people always think that it must have been this huge, life-changing event. But in yeah. some ways, it wasn't in some ways. Because, well, certainly for me, I think partly I've always been the sort of personality. I just get on with this. I've never been a worrier. Life has to go on. The dishes still have to be washed. You still run out of, you know, laundry tablets. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You just do the dishes and brush your teeth. Mm -hmm. it, it, that doesn't all stop, you know. And you still get hungry and have to make, you know, a sandwich. So in some ways it wasn't the big defining event that people all think it was. I mean, in other ways it was, of course, too. But, but also I look back and I think, actually, I was very lucky because... Very soon after I was diagnosed, one day the doctor says, oh, there's a new thing, you know, that you know, looks like it might help or whatever. You know, I think they were putting me on these experimental new drugs about a year after I was diagnosed. Which were those? Well, they're called antiretrovirals, and they're the ones that have transformed everything. And now, in the beginning, there was a time when I was carrying around a pillbox, you know, with 38 tablets that I had to take every day. And some had to be taken with food, some without food, some in the evening. You know, just managing all mm -hmm. those tablets was a full-time job. And most of them came with side effects. But over the years, they just constantly refined that the drugs got better and better and better at what they do. And, you know, and now for, oh God, I don't know how many years, but for quite a number of years now, I take one tablet in the morning and get on with it. And it doesn't have any noticeable side effects? No. Nope. I mean, I was on another one on one tablet, a day one for a couple of years. 
which did have side effects, but I was so used to years of you know, dreadfulness that I thought, this is fine. It's, you know, yeah, it used to yeah. make me dizzy and my equilibrium was a little funny and, and it would give me really intense dreams and not in a good way. Oh, man. Yeah. But then I, had, I changed them once just for totally... Another, they wanted to give me another regular tablet for a regular thing and it interacted badly with the drug I was saying, so they, oh, well, for a while, try to take this one. And the other one that they gave me temporarily, I was like, oh, my God, I love this one. There's no side effects at all. So I've been on that one ever since. It totally eradicates all of the HIV from your system. You're, you're not infectious. Nothing. The only reason it's not a cure is the virus can go latent. Right, and if you didn't take it, it would And it hides away in, like, yeah. parts of the body where the, you know, where the drug doesn't get too easily, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, lymph glands or something. And then if you stop taking the drug it will waken up and go, oh, I got free rain again, and it'll start multiplying, whatever. Um, so it's a functional cure, is what I would say. I mean, people, what they say is it's a manageable condition now. It's one of the uh, few very heartening things about modern life, isn't it? That yes. things like that were, that were in our lifetime... Tombstone ads the tombstone, the TV yeah. and Oh, my God. And yeah. it was just like, you are absolutely fucked if you get that. Yeah. Um, and there's no cure and there's no way. I mean, it was, it was sort of worse than cancer. Yeah. Um, Although, of course, the, we're lucky that we live in places where you can get the treatment right. for that because it is expensive and, of course, in most parts of the world, people don't have access to it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing, well, the thing that still lingers, now it's not as bad as it used to be, but it still lingers quite hard, is the stigma around it. Mm-hmm. There's still a huge stigma around being HIV positive. Is that from friends and family or is that from employers? Is it a legal thing? How does well, it work? Well, it's everyone. I mean, there are a number of countries who technically don't allow you in if you're HIV positive. Now, most of the Western countries have, are changed, have changed that now, thank God. But... Um, well, I mean, I think, first of all, certainly in Ireland, but in everywhere, really, we have a great... We're really great at shaming people for their sexual behaviour, you know. And, of course, there's this really annoying thing, is if, you know, where they say, oh, is it... Um, and believe me, you get it all the time from the trolls on Twitter and all that. That basically you brought it on yourself. No, you know, surely not. Not on Twitter. It's such a, <laughs> yeah, it's such a friendly place. You, you know, that you, know, you deserve it, you know, whatever kind of thing. You can say that to me if in your whole life you have never, ever, ever taken any risk of any kind. If you've never crossed the road with that perfectly looking both ways first. We are about eating, drinking, breathing and fucking. I mean, that's who we are. And if you are able to, you know, resist those primal urges all the time, well, good for you, whatever, you know. Whenever I talk publicly about it, I'll get online, you know, people say, oh, well, yeah, you can say that, but, you know, my taxes are paying for your tablets. And that's true, and I'm glad they are. But, like, does that person run up to a, you know, somebody in a wheelchair in the street? How did you get your work? You know, and he says, oh, well, I, I crossed the road without looking and I was hit by a truck. Get out of that wheelchair! You know, you don't deserve it! You can crawl along the street, you know. But people, you know, feel they can blame you because it's a sexual thing, but they can't blame you. you know, yeah, I mean, your taxes are also going to look after all of us who drink and smoke yes, and yes, do yeah, all I mean, that shit. But they just do, there's a shaming. And there's, but there's even a shaming in the gay community about it, too. And, and what I always say is, if the history of the gay rights movement has taught me anything it is that the single most powerful thing that anybody can do is to come out mm-hmm. because it's people coming out is what changed the world's view about gay people because it's really easy to hold prejudices against people you don't know and I think the same thing about HIV like I can name two people that are fully publicly HIV positive one of them is Charlie country. Sheen yeah, yeah well, <laughs> you know and so the vast majority of people 
think that HIV isn't in their lives. They think it's not something that doesn't affect them. It's something yeah. they read about in the article, the paper, whatever. But if every single person who's living with HIV just came out today, everyone, gay and straight, would realise, you know, lots of people. Yeah, of course. But they just don't feel that they can tell anybody. But HIV is in your life. You know lots of people who are living with it. And um, it's hard because... There's a lot of stigma about it, but that is the would be the way to end it if everybody could just get up and say, well, actually, I'm HIV positive too. And so how does it work? And, you know, you'll tell me if you don't want to talk about any of this. Mm-hmm. How does it work on a practical level when you're dating and when you're having sex and things like that? Like, I don't want to minimise it because it is, it's a thing. You have to deal with it. But to be absolutely just brutally honest with you, it makes no difference to my life. I get up in the morning, I take my tablet and I go on. And most mornings... I have that moment, did I take that tablet? Because I just do it on autopilot, you know. So I never think about it until we have these conversations or I have to go to my twice yearly little checkup. Mm-hmm. The only time it's a fucking pain is in your dating. And I'm single, and every now and then I'll you know, meet somebody and start dating. And then you think, well, when am I going to tell them this thing? Um, it's like coming out. Constantly, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's like the same feelings of you know worry and all that stuff about coming out when you were gay. It's like having to do that every time you meet somebody new. People's reactions vary, and some of the people that you think, okay, well, he's educated and gay and whatever, and you think he'll know the story, he'll be fine about, it. you know, he'll be the one who'll absolutely freak out. And then somebody else who you're really worried might freak out, and they'll be cool about it. Um, and they're freaking out because they feel that you're contagious, or. Yes, despite you know the, the truth that that is a, a big thing. I'm dating somebody at the moment, and this has happened a few times. And um, where I've gone and said, you know, by the way, I'm HIV positive, and they go, I am too, and we both have this oh, big relief because yeah. you know, and, and actually on these dating apps and that you often see people who say you're looking for other positive guys, and that's why because they don't want to deal with you know, all they that. just don't yeah. want to have to deal with the. The hassle, yeah, you know, yeah, of, yeah. of you know, exp- trying to explain everything, and then people, and it doesn't matter how many times you give somebody the facts, you know, I ain't infectious, you know, I, this, that, and the other. It's just the hangover of that bloody time of with the tombstones on the TV, yeah. and it was the scariest thing in the world, and you're all gonna die, you know, that lingers on, that fear lingers on. Yeah, of course. <laughs> to your national treasure status, <laughs> to your transformation from humble drag queen to being a, a spokesperson for mm. gay rights. Uh, would you say that's fair? Is that how you feel? Yes. Well, actually, it's worse than that. <laughs> In that sometimes now here in Ireland, I'm expected to be a spokesman for all sorts of equality issues or something. You know, because what, what happened was Panty became the sort of symbol of sort of a new... Ireland or civil equality or whatever. And in some ways, that's nice and, and lovely. Um, would you be, were ways. you being political when you would do your performances? Yes. My, 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 my theatre shows always, you know, on the surface, they're funny and whatever, but there's always a serious political intent with them. But in, in this particular case, I went on a light entertainment chat show 
you know, did a silly performance and then ch- sat down for the usual chat. And I, so I was not going there in political mode. What was that show? It's called The Saturday Night Show. Um, it's your typical Saturday chat show. And that's on RTE. Yes, it's on RTE, our yeah. know, national broadcaster. And um, basically what happened was we're having the chat. It was before, long before we had a marriage referendum or whatever, long before all of that. Yes, when was the equal marriage referendum? The marriage referendum was last year in May, so it's just over a year ago. Oh, yes, ago. yes, 2015. And I was on this TV show like two and a half years ago or yeah. something. So I guess it was in the ether. We knew that there was a likelihood that at some point we might be having a referendum on same-sex marriage. Anyway, so a conversation came up about being gay in Ireland and homophobia generally, whatever. You were on the show as yourself, not as Panty. Well, both. They did a bit of trickery. It's a live show, but they did a bit of trickery, and Panty was on early. Okay, got you. Um, but in this situation, yeah, during the chat, I'm Rory. Yeah. So it was a kind of a casual discussion about homophobia or whatever. And during that discussion, the host asked me, he essentially asked me to name the kind of people I was talking about. And I named some very well-known Irish journalists, you know, and I, I mentioned a particular fringe ultra-Catholic right-wing organisation mm-hmm. which campaigns on abortion and against gay Right, that's what that's their raison d'etre. So I named a few. Um, now, as far as I'm concerned, it was very innocuous. I also then gave a very gentle description of what I thought homophobia was and how it can be very subtle and small. And whatever, I thought nothing of it. And neither did the host of the show, you know, and I was all fine. But then six of them sued me, but they also sued Ortie for defamation. This was this sort of religious group and the journalists? Yeah, a couple of the journalists that I had mentioned by name and then four, three or four members of this organisation. Yeah. Two of whom I'd never even heard of in my life, uh-huh. you know. But, and what happened basically was, I mean, you know, the defamation laws here are very strict and archaic. The onus is not on the plaintiff, in a sense, to, to prove that they were defamed. The onus is on you to prove that you didn't defame them. Mm-hmm. And so in this country, the media are absolutely terrified of defamation suits because there have been some major ones. And so what happened was none of the mainstream media would write about it. So for a while, it was a total non-story. But then sort of the um, online media started talking about it. They are a bit more fearless. But then what happened was RTE took a very practical view what they did was they paid the money to, to make it go away. They settled. Okay. Rather than fight it. And then that exploded what had been a sort of a fairly minor-ish scandal into a massive, huge scandal was about homophobia, about how Ireland treats its gay citizens, about whether the gays are allowed to say what's homophobic or not, but also about censorship and free speech and the role of the national broadcaster and all of these things. Oh, because they... Um, the, the first inkling that anything had happened was it was taken down offline. My interview was taken down offline. So that's what brought in the issues of censorship and all sorts of stuff. And also there's just something about the timing. It lit a fire among people who were sort of saying this sort of backwardy view of Ireland. Actually, we thought we'd killed that. Mm-hmm. And so there was like thousands of people on street protests in the city centre, big posters in shop windows, you know, we're on Team Panty, um, you know, receipts in restaurants that have Team Panty written on the bottom. Like, it just became a huge thing. Right. And then in the middle of all of that, I went and I made a speech at the Abbey Theatre. And, and it was during the run of this show that had been running for months, and at the end of every performance, they invited a different politician or personality or thinker or artist or whatever to somehow react to the show you know yeah and they asked me to do it on just the very final performance of the, the run and I, I almost said no because um there's just a lot I was getting sued there was just everything was going on whatever 
but I know them in the Abbey very well, and I've had me show there, and they've been very good to me, and whatever. So I thought, oh, fuck it, I'll just go and do it, you know? Um, so I turn up, zero expectations. I had written the speech that afternoon. I, I, I gave this speech, which is about, you know, like homophobia and oppression. Like, nobody wants to hear that, you know what I mean? And then I, I hooked off, and it immediately just exploded and went viral, and... And so then this reignited the whole thing and it became this huge sort of deep national conversation about homophobia and, you know, about Ireland. It was very just deep conversation and, um, yeah, just sort of trundled on. But it resonated across the world, though, didn't it? it? Yes, it did so bizarrely. Like, I always laugh and, you know, so I started getting messages from, you know, all the famous gays. You know, Martina Lovatilova and RuPaul or whatever, you know. Like, the the Pet Shop Boys made a fucking dance track out of the speech. Uh You know what I mean? Like, it's just so nuts what happened. And um, in lots of ways, it sort of changed my life. I mean, I've been plodding along fine. I've been doing these shows and had the bar or whatever. Um, and, and I'd be making me speeches at Prides and giving out or whatever, but it just exploded onto another sort of level. And then, you know, suddenly you're getting invited all over the world to speak at universities, and, you know, you know they're giving you a proclamation from New York City Council. Like, it's just weird, you know, and you're a fucking drag queen. You used to pull things out of her arse. You know, and it's, I spent 25 years trying to get people to take what I do more seriously. And then, you know, in the space of a year, in some ways it went too far, Right. And now, it, certainly in Ireland, everything I t- say is taken so seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everything is poured over. Um, you know, because I got into drag in the first place. It was underground and nutty and transgressive and, you know, it was kind of punk and two fingers to everybody. Yeah. You know, and now... Now you're the political yeah, you're, establishment. Yes, it's weird. It's, and now it's that funny. you've got rights, equal marriage rights in mm. Ireland as well. Yeah, well, what happened was then was so after all of that pantygate, it's called here, yeah. um, that had only just sort of died down. And then, of course, the referendum for gay marriage was announced. Mm. And so obviously then I was very involved in that or whatever. So it all sort of rolled into both. But one good thing that had really come out of the Pantygate thing was it meant that the whole country had had this really deep, at times philosophical, conversation about how Ireland treats its gay citizens and about how do we really feel about them and homophobia and all of these things. So by the time we came to the referendum campaign, we actually had a relatively, I won't say totally, but a relatively calm, nuanced discussion. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the stuff had just been dealt with during the whole sort of Pantygate right. thing. And to be honest, I think a lot of the reason, I mean, they might deny it or whatever, but I, I don't know, but I suspect the reason they sued, especially the national broadcaster, is they were aware that a referendum campaign was probably on the horizon. And I think the sort of anti-gay forces decided we need to stamp out the word homophobia. Because if you go on a TV debate or something, and you say, oh, well, the gays shouldn't get married because this, that, and the other. And if somebody can say, well, you would say that because you're a homophobe, uh-huh. it, it kind of undercuts, you know. So I think they wanted to set the parameters. And they said, right, if we let this bloody drag queen call us a homophobe on the national broadcaster, you know, that they wanted to lay down the rules for the national broadcaster. They wanted to put manners on RT in a way and say, this is how it's going to be. These are the rules. I think, you know, it all backfired on them. I think, you know, yeah. if you ask them, they'd say it was the worst, one of the worst decisions they'd ever made. But, you know, because it turned the country against them, sort of. And so now Ireland, am I right in saying, is the first country in the world to have... It is the first equal- country in the world to introduce marriage equality through a popular vote. Right, OK, yeah. Um, in every other country, it's been done through legislation. Yeah. Or whatever. It's not something that we wanted to do. It would be much easier to do it through legislation or whatever. And a, and, a, and a referendum, as you Brits now know, is really risky. Sure. 
And if you don't get the answer that you're looking for, you're, you know, you're in your bind. Um, Just have another one. Well, you, it's very hard to have another one. You know, usually you can't have another for like a generation Indeed, or something. You know? discovered, yeah. So it is a risky way to do it and everything. But, but in saying all of that about it being risky and all that, if you do do by referendum, it's a, a much more powerful way to do it. Because in other countries now, people will still carp and say, oh, it was brought in by a political sure. elite and they'll try to undo it and, and they could easily undo it. Here, you can't say that. No, we had a long six-month deep conversation exactly. about it. Exactly. Everybody and got together. Especially as it's about how you feel when you're walking down the street. Yes. You don't want to feel that everyone's wandering around going, ah, oh, I didn't, you know, this was foisted upon me. Yes, exactly. And they can't. And because the, the result was overwhelming. So it wasn't, say, like you're Brexit and really close. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. No, it was absolutely emphatically, yes. And also it's more powerful also in a way that I hadn't anticipated in the sense that I thought that the day after the referendum, everything would just be the same except, you know, gay couples could get married. But actually it's actually been much more than that. I think the gay community here just feels much more self-confident about their place in our society because we know exactly where we stand. You know, and before the revenue, we might have hoped that we thought it was that way or whatever, but now we absolutely know that that is the way people feel about us. And that has, you know, really expressed itself in lots and lots of ways. Like, you see gay couples holding hands, walking around the streets, just in a way you didn't before. Um, I'm from a tiny little village in the west of Ireland. At last Pride here in Dublin, I'm here in Panty Bar, and this group of like seven or eight young people, like all, you know, 20 years old kind of thing, all from Ballinrobe County Mayo. And I'm like, Ballinrobe has a fucking gay community? Like, you know, it has transformed the country in that way. And I think Irishmen in general are very proud of it because I think they kind of say... It was a way to sort of say to the world, no, that vision you have of Ireland from your Hollywood movies and all of that with the priest still running around with his crowbar or whatever, you know, th- th- <laughs> that ain't true, you know. You know, I think Irish people are sort of proud, you know, that it sort of, it sort of was like a stamp. It was like sort of saying, this is who we are. This is what Ireland is now. And I think our Irish people are really proud of that. So I think all in all, it's been, it's been very good. This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area. And spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code Buxton to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. There you go, Rory O'Neill, also known as Panty Bliss. Really loved meeting Rory and I'm very grateful to him for making the time to talk to me. Huge thanks as well to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his invaluable production support on this episode. Much appreciated as ever. Thanks, Seamus. 
I do apologize if you're a regular podcat for the lack of rigid regularity as far as when these podcasts come out. But I hope that you're all getting used to the idea that they just sort of come out when I'm able to do them, really. Um, And I have to slightly juggle the time it takes to put them together with all the other very important stuff in my life. Oh, you know, I've got to go on TV very occasionally and be glib. Uh, What else do I do? Toss around on Twitter occasionally. Actually, a nice thing happened on Twitter the other day. It was a great example of uh, what I really like about social media, which is the opportunity to get recommendations and links to things either you'd forgotten about or didn't know about from people. And it was a nice little fortuitous path that opened up thanks to Julian Barrett, who tweeted a picture of one of Jim Moyer's paintings. Jim Moyer, a.k.a. Vic Reeves, of course, who you probably know is really quite an accomplished painter, an artist. Does these sort of grotesque caricatures almost of people, but that doesn't really sum up how good they are. And um, Julian tweeted this picture that Jim Moyer had done of the band Weather Report and Julian wrote Jim Moyer's painting of Weather Report sometimes the universe gets its act together and it really struck a chord I thought yeah I agree I love Jim Moyer's paintings and I'd forgotten that I love Weather Report and I went back and delved into a couple of records that I have of theirs And sure enough, they're great. And it reminded me, of course, that Jaco Pistorius, the bassist, was in Weather Report. These are all people that Joe and various other school friends were into in a big way at school that I never quite got my head round at the time. But more recently, I've seen the value in it and and got really excited by it. And Jaco Pistorius especially, apart from being a genius doing things with the bass that no one had really done before, was also a, an interesting and troubled individual. And there's a great film about him called Jacko, the movie, J-A-C-O. Uh, and it had been on my list, you know, of, of things I wanted to see, but it kind of fell off or I forgot about it. And Julian's tweet reminded me that I wanted to see it, so I hunted it down... It's really good. Some extraordinary footage of him at various points in his career. He had a very short life, unfortunately, and the story of why that was is told. And there's also footage in that documentary of Jaco Pastorius working with Joni Mitchell and touring with her band for a year or two. And I'd never made that connection before. I don't know much about Joni Mitchell. I've only got the sort of obvious albums of hers. But, of course, the album that Jacko played on was Hajira. And I remember an old friend of mine talking about how much he loved that album. And I kind of ignored him because my, that friend had sort of questionable taste in other areas as far as I was concerned. So I was like, oh, yeah, well, there you go. That's an album I'm not going to seek out. But, of course, he was absolutely right. It's an amazing album, adorned with all these wonderful and strange bits of bass work from Mr. Pistorius.
So I've really been enjoying that album the last few days, Hegira. Uh, and it's all thanks to Julian's tweet. So there you go. I'll leave you with that inspiring story. Until next time we're together, please take very good care. I love you. <laughs>